Father God, we come before you as a church this afternoon, this Sunday, to seek you in your word. Lord, we know that for those who are Christians, we have relationship with you. We know, Lord, that you love us and you care for us. And we're reminded as we gather before your word that you have things to teach us and show us to lift up Christ before our eyes so that we might be changed from one degree of glory to the next more and more into his image. And so we pray, God, that we would love your word, that we would receive your word, that we would apply your word to our lives for your glory and, our for good, and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you this afternoon. Um, if you didn't know or remember, we had a church camp out this weekend, so it was a tiring couple of days, and uh, we're still going. I'm, I'm encouraged by those who were there and still made it here, and for those who are streaming online, uh, I'm glad you can watch the stream as well. Today is an exciting day. I'm uh, Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe, but I'm not the pastor who normally sets the preaching schedule. That is Pastor Jesse, and he is out of town. That's why it's so exciting. No, that's not the reason. Um, but we're starting a new series, a new book of the Bible, while Jesse is out of town. And that's kind of a strange thing. Uh, normally, he wants to be the one to start off a series, but I, I forced his hand this time. Um, he's preaching out of retreat. He's preaching to another church, uh, the Word of God. Um, we just finished the books of First and Second Samuel. It took us over two years to get through them, and it was kind of cool. I was thinking back on that, and I was thinking about the fact that we finished this big chunk of the Old Testament, and I've always loved those books, but I feel now that I understand them better, right? I understand more what they mean spiritually, what, what they mean to us as Christians, how they apply to our lives, and that's really what expository preaching is all about. We want to explain the Word of God to you so that you don't just know what it says, but you understand what it means, and then also what it means to your life. For us at Zoe Church, one of the things we value is to not just preach the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, but also to try to teach you the whole counsel of God, to not neglect any parts of the Bible, to make sure that we're giving you a balanced view of what the Bible has to say. So another thing that we like to do is to go back and forth between Old and New Testament books. We do a New Testament book. When we're done with that, we go to the Old Testament, which was First and Second Samuel. And when we're done with that, we're going back to a New Testament book today. So all that to say, we're moving, we're starting our next expository series on a new book of the Bible, which is, um, drum roll, Brady, no, it is the book of Jude, the book of Jude. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Jude is right at the end, right before the book of Revelation. And it is a tiny book. In fact, it's one that you might miss. It's only one or two pages in most Bibles. The book of Jude is not only one of the shortest books of the New Testament, it's one of the most neglected. And even though maybe you've read it before, I imagine that uh, many of you here have not studied the book in depth. It can be a little bit difficult to study at times. And so our hope is that by studying this book together over the next 10 weeks, we're going to receive the message that God's Word has for us. Jude, uh, it's so short, it doesn't have chapters. I don't know if you're newer to reading the Bible. This book doesn't have chapters. It's just one, one chapter, Jude, verse 1. You can read it with me. I'm going to read the whole book today to give us a sense of the context, and then we will get right into it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, 
and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But those people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been given an official warning? Have you ever received an official warning? Maybe you were stopped by a police officer for speeding, but he decided not to give you a ticket. Maybe a boss has brought you into the office after a week when you kind of messed up a project and they told you you needed to step up your performance. 
1912, John Phillips was a young 25-year-old man who had been working his way up in the world, and he was promoted to be the senior wireless officer on a newly built, unsinkable Titanic. On the night of April 14th, he received a warning. Now, to give you some context, what had happened was the day before, uh, and it's interesting, this is like actually the anniversary kind of what the Titanic sinking was yesterday, but the day before John Phillips uh, received that warning, the wireless device on the ship had gone down. And so really what they used that device for, it was kind of a new technology, was to send messages from people on the ship to other boats or back to the mainland. So people were on this exciting maiden voyage of the Titanic. They wanted to send these personal greetings, business correspondences, kind of sweet nothings to their loved ones who were back on shore. But they had had hit a snag. They, they weren't able to send these messages for a full day. And so John Phillips on April 14th was working tirelessly to send all of the backlogged messages out. At around 9.30 p.m., working still into the night, he received a message from a ship called the Masaba, who was also in the area. And this is what the message said. Now, they used Morse code, so it was very short, right? They didn't want to tap out all those letters. This is what it said. Saw much heavy pack ice, Great number, large icebergs, also field ice. It was short, it was brief, it was pointed, it was clear. It was unmistakably a warning, and as you all know, it was necessary. Now, the book of Jude is a short book, not five minutes long for us to read through. It is brief, it is pointed, it is clear. But if we were to boil it down even further to just one word, that's what this book is all about. Warning. It's short, it's brief, it's pointed, it's clear, just like that message to the Titanic was, because from the very beginning of the church, the Holy Spirit knew that this warning was what Christians would need. Now, the question is, a warning about what? Well, we read the book. A warning about not getting led away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the name of our series, Once for All. It's a warning about false teachers in the church who would lead people to lives that deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a warning about the need to contend for the faith and fight for the truth, even sometimes with others who call themselves Christians. A warning that everyone will give account to the authority of Jesus Christ, the Lord. But it starts, of course, with the beginning. So by way of introduction, in order to set the context of this book and our whole series for the next 10 weeks through the book of Jude so that we can rightly understand and interpret it, we're going to dive today into just the first two verses of Jude, which explain to us before all else why we need to listen to this warning. We'll see the answer to that question in three parts this afternoon by examining the writer, the readers, and finally the request. So let's get right into it. If you're taking notes, the first point for Jude 1 and 2 is the writer, which shows us the authority of the warning that this book gives. Let's read Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And we can stop right there. The first word in the book is a name. It announces the person who is writing this 
to the church. And that's kind of a nice, convenient thing, because not every book in the Bible starts with the name of the author, but this one does. And so we're meant to know something about this man, Jude. Now, we spend a lot of time in the New Testament as uh, evangelical Christians reading and studying the works of Paul in particular. It's easy to remember who he is. Um, Peter and John are familiar as well, right? You kind of know who these authors are. But Jude, I would guess, is a much less known figure to most of you here. Most of you probably haven't spent a lot of time reading or thinking about this man, Jude, at least not here in the year 2023. He's not a huge player in the narratives of the New Testament. So we might be excused for our ignorance. But verse 1 tells us that there are some important facts we need to know if we're going to receive this book rightly. Jude starts with a description of himself, not just a name, and he highlights two things. And you can see it right there in the book. Jude is a servant, and he is a brother. First, a servant. Now, right off the bat, we need to know something about this word. The Greek word for servant is the word doulos. Maybe you have heard it before. Doulos is really most accurately translated not as servant, but as slave. Maybe you guys have have heard that before. Maybe you haven't. The word literally means a slave. But the translation of this word as servant has caused a great deal of misunderstanding about a Christian's identity when it comes to Jesus. Because if you think about it, in our day and age, if I were to tell you that I am a servant, you you wouldn't think about ownership and, and slavery at all, right? What would you think? I'm like an Uber driver. I'm someone who does something for you. I get paid and then I can check out or clock out at the end of the day. But this isn't the term that Jude uses to describe himself. The word is literally a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a reason why modern translations don't want to use the word slave. It's because it's associated with a brutal and immoral system of subjugation you all know about that existed in our country and around the world in many cultures. But that brutality, that disregard for human life is not what is in mind here. It's not what the Bible means by a slave of Jesus Christ. That's not the picture of Jesus you would get if you read the Bible at all. What the word slave of Jesus Christ does convey is the reality that according to Jude, his life belongs to Jesus. He is owned by another. Everything he does is for the sake of Jesus and not from his own prerogative. To be a slave of Christ means, according to John MacArthur, that Jesus is owner and master, worthy of unquestioned allegiance and absolute obedience. His word is the final authority, his will the ultimate mandate. This is how Jude describes himself. And so it's a statement of humility, but more importantly than that, it's a statement of loyalty to Christ alone. So I said that the writer shows us the reason why uh, there's authority behind this warning. And how does that work? Because Jude serves Jesus. And so what this introduction tells us is that he's not giving his own opinion. Right? A lot of times you come to church and that's what the world thinks about Christians, right? They have their opinions and they're just trying to push them on everyone else. Right? You got your opinions, I got mine, but what gives you the right to tell me that your opinion is more important than mine? Because it's not my opinion. It's Jesus Christ. That's what Jude is saying. He's not writing a book to talk about all of his own personal grievances. He's writing as a servant of Christ the Lord. These words are the words Jude wrote according to the will and command of the Lord himself. And so as Christians, we need to receive them as such. What else does Jude say about himself just in this one small snippet? Not just that he is a slave, but that he is a brother. 
he is a brother. Specifically, that he is the brother of James. Now, um, the name James, if you didn't know, is in Greek um, the same name as the Hebrew word Jacob. Okay, so there's a whole etymology behind that. I could explain it to you if you want to get bored. But Jacob and James are the same name. They refer to the same name. Just one is the Hebrew version, one is the Greek version. And so you put that together and you read your Bible, you'll find out there are a whole lot of people named Jacob and James in the New Testament and Old Testament. It was a popular common name. It's kind of like the name Daniel here, right? All you Daniels that I'm looking at. Um, who are you talking about? I don't know, right? James is common, but in the early church, there was really only one James that you could refer to with a mononym, right? Not saying his father's name, not saying where he's from, just saying James in the church, kind of like Kobe or Madonna. There's only one James who has no last name in the scriptures, and he's the most important James of the early church, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Kind of an interesting thing. This makes sense, though, of the Bible's text. If you turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 6, you can use your phone, get there a little bit quicker. Maybe. Mark chapter 6. Verse 3, I just want you to see this for yourself so you can see kind of how the Bible is a historical book. It all fits together. Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He is um, doing ministry there, but the people reject him. And in verse 3, this is what his hometown friends or, or acquaintances say. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the Bible. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, they weren't his full brothers and sisters because Jesus is born of the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary. But after Mary and Joseph got married and they consummated their marriage, they had other kids. And these kids' names were James and Joseph, or Joseph Judas or Jude, and Simon. Jesus' younger brothers, the sons of Joseph and Mary, are in the Bible. They didn't believe in him while he was on earth doing his ministry, but after his resurrection, they came to understand who he was to submit themselves to him. And so then, to give us the context of this book, who is Jude? He's a man writing this warning to the early church, but, but what is his authority to do so? He's Jude, the brother of James, the brother of Jesus. So interesting. The brother, the half-brother of Jesus Christ is writing this warning to us. It gives us a reason to listen to this man who is inspired by God. Not that he shared in Jesus' divinity, no, not at all, but that he had a closeness to Jesus on par with exceeding even that of the disciples. Now, we need to stop for a moment and really consider how incredible it is that Jude and James were the half-brothers of Jesus. It's just an incredible thing from history and for our faith. One of the great historical proofs for the gospel is the fact that after Jesus rose from the dead, there were not just dozens, but hundreds of disciples who said that they saw him and then were willing to die for that fact. Right? They didn't just claim it. They were willing to, to go to the cross themselves to be persecuted and executed because they believed they saw a man rise from the dead. But beyond that, one of the most compelling proofs for me personally that Jesus really is who Christians claim he is, is the testimony of his brothers. 
Let me explain. I have a lot of kids. I have four kids. Not a lot in Texas. But there are two things I've noticed as a parent and as a pastor. Number one, nobody likes when their sibling acts like their parent. Amen? Right? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you with uh, siblings here, still in your minor years, you know. Nobody likes when their sibling acts like their parent. Even if they're saying something right. Even if they're telling you what the parents said to tell you, you don't want that, right? I tell my kids all the time, don't act like your sibling's parent. Number two, people tend to know the worst about their siblings. Amen? You know the worst things about your siblings. And in fact, it's not just when your kids. As adults, as a pastor, I've seen it. When you have problems with your siblings, with your family, they are so volatile because you see them in light of who they always have been, right? You know all their faults, all the ways in which they sinned against you before. Familiarity often can breed contempt, especially in family. The smallest thing can set you off because you know he's always like this. She's always like this. And yet, in the early church, we have two men who grew up with Jesus, who were leading the church, teaching not only that he was Lord and calling him master, but saying that their brother was a perfect man. Surely if there were sin in Jesus' life, it would disprove the claims of the gospel. And if anyone would know it, it would be James and Jude. The early church recognized the importance of this fact as well. Now, you guys are reading. We're trying to be good students of the scripture. Look at Jude again. Jude does not say the brother of Jesus in this book. Right? He doesn't say that. James, who wrote the book of James, never called himself the brother of Jesus in his book. Because the reality is that wasn't their, their main qualification, right? They weren't saying that somehow they deserved a special status for being quote unquote related to Jesus. But what becomes apparent if you read the Bible and church history is that the other apostles, the other people, they called them the brothers of the Lord. They didn't claim this for themselves, but the church recognized that there was an authority in the proximity that these men had to Jesus. Paul and the other apostles called James and Jude the brothers of the Lord. I had a professor in seminary who said, as Christians, we read the book of Jude, we need to understand that, that we see things the wrong way, okay? As evangelical Christians coming after the Protestant Reformation, we think about the Bible and the New Testament with a Paul priority. What do I mean by that? We, we, we know Paul so well, right? We've read Romans and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all of these things. And then we read the book of James or the book of Jude, and we say, does this make sense? Does it fit in with Paul? But that's not what happened in the history of the church, Read the book of Acts. Read Paul's own letters. What happened is Paul was the guy killing Christians. He was the guy who was doing all these things. When he became saved, he went to Jerusalem, presented himself to the apostles and the brothers of the Lord in order for him to be affirmed by them. It's crazy. The early church would see James and and Jude, these brothers of the Lord, as having the authority to speak the words of God in Scripture. They were pillars of the church. They were held in high regard. They exercised leadership in the church. And even though Jude is less well known to us, he spoke with far greater authority than most of us recognize today. He's a servant of Christ, as all of us are, but he's an important servant. One who spoke with the authority of an apostle as a brother of the Lord for the building up of the church. And so it answers the question, why 
listen to this warning. Because Jude is the one writing it. And that leads us to the next part of the introduction. We've looked at the writer. Next, we need to examine, by way of introduction, the readers of this book that show us the necessity of the warning. The readers. Look again, still in verse 1. Jude writes, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Notice who he addresses it to. Which Christians is Jude talking to in this book? The answer is all of them. It's all of them. All of us. This is one of the general epistles of the New Testament. It's a letter written to Christians as a whole, not to a specific church for a very particular instance. So the readers really are not just those people in the first century, but us today. Christians of all time and all places are being addressed by Jude. And as he makes his address to Christians, we seem to have three adjectives that describe us as believers. Uh, really, there's one main description and two additional ones that are added on. The main one, the most important one, is the word called. The readers of this book are called. Now, the Bible often talks about Christians as those who have been called by God. It has to do with our identity, our name, what we are, because God has said it is so. A synonym could be summoned or selected or destined. Now, in using the word called, what is you doing? He's taking the identity of the Christian. And he's moving it from something that, that we do to something that God has done. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not saying to those who have decided to follow Jesus. He's not saying to those who have started to take church more seriously in the past few years. Though those things may apply, that's not what he says. That's not what he, he pulls out. He's saying that true Christians are those who have had God work in their lives to draw them to himself. This is such an important fact for us to understand about Christianity. God is the one who does the work. You see, the gospel call that goes out into the world, it's a call that, that comes from God, and those who respond to it do so because God is calling them. It's a one-word reminder of the gospel. See, very soon, Jude will talk about the faith given once for all to the saints. That's what we're titling this whole series, Once for All. There is a message that has been given. And the content of that message that is once for all given is very simple. God is holy. We are sinners. We deserve God's wrath. But God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. Whoever repents from their sins and believes in him will be saved. But... The only way that you can repent and believe is if God calls you. What's the point? Why why is he saying that? So you don't do it? No, he's saying it so you would understand that this is God's work. Romans 8, 28, a passage so many love. That for those who, 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 who are called according to his purpose, he works all things together for their good. And yet immediately after What does he say? Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, there is a plan that God has revealed for the people whom he has called. And the two additional words Jude uses to describe us reveal that. what, what, What happens? What does it mean that you're called by God? Well, first, we are called beloved by God the Father. Beloved by God. Christians are loved by our creator. 
God loves you. Right? That, that's church 101. And yet this reminder that we are called beloved, it should change how we view the warning of Jude. It should change how we view the warning given here. I think part of the reason this book isn't that popular comes from the fact that our modern day views on correction and rebuke and warning and judgment are off. It can feel very harsh to us to say that someone is wrong or, or false or is a false teacher, right? You guys understand? I, I feel that way. I grew up in the same time and place as you. It feels such a hard thing to say. But that's not what Jude says here. In fact, according to Jude, it is the love of God for his people that compels the warning of Jude to the church. You know, most of you know that I went to the Master's Seminary. It's a seminary where John MacArthur is the president. And John MacArthur is a famous guy, but he's not always well-loved because a lot of people think he's a hater. He says mean things about people. He says people are wrong about certain things. He calls them out publicly. And I understand why that can kind of make someone uncomfortable. But understand here that, that, that what's going on in Jude is something that comes from love. John MacArthur has been credited as saying that the most loving thing you can do is to tell someone the truth. Now, we need some caveats. Um, there is a wrong way to go about correction. There is a pugnaciousness that the Bible talks about, wanting to fight people all the time. That is wrong. There's divisiveness, wanting to divide the church over things that are not truly important. That is a sin. There is an ungodly way to point out error in the church. You don't just have a blank check because of Jew to go out and, and, and hate on people left and right. Whoever disagrees with you is the worst person in the world. But at the same time, if we're going to actually take this book seriously and not just kind of brush it under the rug, you need to get rid of the false notion that to warn someone about false teaching is an unloving thing to do. It can be the most loving thing to warn someone about error and sin and something that would cause damage to them. The strong words of Jude are not motivated by hatred of his enemies, but by love for God's church. That is what Jude says here. It is because we are loved by God that the warning is necessary. You know, when I'm driving down the freeway, 75, and there's a crazy accident, which happens at least once a week, and I'm stuck there, can't get off, right? I'm stuck on the, the freeway, and I text someone. I don't text a random acquaintance that I've met a few years ago. I text my loved ones and tell them, don't go this way because you're going to get stuck. It's those I love who I warn. The same is true of God. And so we need to realize as we go into this book that the warning is necessary because God loves us. And that means, one, as we think about how we warn others, we need to have compassion and love and think about our motivations. But also as we receive a warning, that we would receive it as those who are beloved by God. Wouldn't you want to know if you were walking into a trap? Wouldn't you want to know if there was something dangerous in your meal? Wouldn't you want to know if somebody in your life was a person who had shown they should not be trusted? As the Proverbs say, God disciplines those he loves. His warnings are good for those who are loved by him. And so, brothers and sisters, beloved, we need to see this warning as that. When I was on 
middle school, I went on a picnic with my dad. I was reminded of this during the camp out. Uh, my family was there and my dad was there and uh, there was a bunch of bees that were hovering around the trash can. And it was kind of, you know, a scary thing as a kid. You're afraid of getting stung. You don't want to go near that, that activity, right? You know how bees are. They just kind of go for anything that's kind of sweet. And, um, and I was playing with my friends. I came back to where my family was having the picnic, and I went to grab my Sprite, which was a can, right? A can Sprite. It was open. I had drunk half of it. And as I was about to drink it, my dad said, there's a bee in there. And I looked at my dad, and I, was, I thought he was messing with me. And I was like, he's joking, right? He's like, there's a bee in there. I was like, no, you're lying. He told me there's a bee in there. And I drank the Sprite. Now, as you can imagine, it was to my horror and surprise when there was a bee on my lips. Now, it didn't sting me, praise God. But if I had understood my father was warning me out of love, I would have never drank that soda. We're called beloved by God the Father. It matters to the warning. We're also called, interestingly in this verse, kept for Jesus Christ. Kept for Jesus Christ. Now, the title Christ, when used with Jesus, it signifies his identity as the Messiah. Christ means the chosen one, the anointed one of God, the chosen king. We spent a whole lot of time talking about David. Christ talks about how Jesus is the promised son of David. And this helps us understand what Jude is saying here. Not only are we loved by God, we are kept for the sake of Jesus, the chosen king. The health of our doctrine, right? Being a place where sound doctrine is taught, our spiritual well-being, the, the teaching that we give, they have eternal significance. Our holding to the truth, our endurance to cling to the faith is not about making someone on earth proud of us. It's not about making John MacArthur happy when he looks at our website. Okay? It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. Jude says, kept for Jesus, for the sake of of Jesus. There's a theologically important idea here. The warning to contend earnestly for the faith, to beware of false teachers, to cling to the gospel given once for all is a reminder that those who have been called by God are being readied for a future with him. There's a glorious future for every Christian. A glorious event really when we are finally presented before the Lord mature. Paul talks about that in Colossians 1. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man to present every man mature in Christ. There's something we're headed towards. So then our spiritual health directly relates to the way God will receive the glory in our lives at the end of our lives. Let me put it this way. Imagine that I owned a home here in Texas, um, but some point down the line after my kids were a little bit older, Trisha and I uh, decide to move away temporarily, maybe to become missionaries somewhere uh, for a season, and rent it out, furnished to you, because you're in need of a home. Now, in the house, I've cleared out most of my stuff, but there is a box that I keep. It has keepsakes. It has my daughter's first drawing, her special stuffed animal, her first diary entry where she talked about wanting to be married. And I tell you, please keep this box safe for the future because I want to give it to my daughter, Natalie, when she finally has a husband at their wedding, if she finally has a husband at their wedding. Would you take care of that box? Some of you here are like, no, please don't. It's too much pressure. I hope you would. I hope it would matter to you. 
that you would put it somewhere safe and you would keep it safe so that it could be ready for that important occasion. And in the same way, Jude says he is writing to people who are called kept not for themselves or for any other man, but for Christ the Lord. And you see the idea of a wedding gift. It's not arbitrary. The Bible talks this way. When Jesus finally comes back, it will be like a great wedding feast, according to Scripture. A great celebration when he gathers his own to himself, the church, mature and blameless and holy. There will be rejoicing. It will be the most beautiful, God-glorifying thing because we will be presented to him, for him. The warning for the church against sin, false teaching, against those who would take us away from the lordship of Christ. They're not done for any man's sake, but for Jesus Christ alone. And so Jude wrote this book for Christians of all times and places, like us who have been called, so we might be warned according to God's love and for his good purposes. And so if that's the case, let's make it practical. We need to see some things that might be difficult as necessary. Some warnings that might seem harsh as appropriate. Concerns that might seem too pointed as supremely relevant. You've been called by the Spirit of God, beloved of the Father, kept for the glory of the Son. So you need to be aware of certain things. There will be, and there are, people who appear to be Christians who will teach you that the Christian life is really about God serving you more than you being a slave of God. He'll give you what you want. He'll give you everything you ever wanted. Just hand over a check. Beware. And there are some in the church who will tell you that because God is love, because God loves you so much, then you don't actually have to do the things he says. Because God is love, you don't have to worry about the things he says are wrong. Beware. They're lying to us as Christians. There will be some so-called Christians who will try to convince you the word of God is not really trustworthy and can't be the authority in your life or you're going to be some sort of weirdo. Beware of those people. I remember speaking with a younger uh, Christian who had gone off to a Christian college and said, man, these TAs in my class, they're so wise. They know so much. They told me that the Bible is not actually true. Beware. Christian college. It's the love of God and the glory of Christ that compels Jude to speak these things. May it compel us to listen. The readers of this letter show us the necessity of the warning and that leads us finally and thirdly to the request of the letter in verse 2, which shows us the blessings of the warning Jude gives. Point 3, the request. You can read with me, Jude 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Turns out that Jude is fond of triplets. Um, Not like people, okay, but like groups of three. Um, they show up a few times in the letter. Um, now, many books of the New Testament begin with a prayer of blessing of some sort, some sort of blessing to the readers. And here he chooses a triplet of blessings as he, as he prays on behalf of the Christians who are called and who read his letter. Now, why does he talk about things in threes? Right, it's an interesting question. The answer is we don't know. Right? We don't know why. He doesn't say it's a rhetorical device he uses, but it's a good one. 
Um, it's probably the same reason why we always make every sermon have three points, right? It just feels kind of uh, like a good symmetry to it. Maybe it has to do with the Holy Trinity. I don't know. Um, we like to get things in threes. But whatever the reason is for using a group of three, the individual parts still deserve our attention. Jude blesses the readers and prays for them to receive mercy and peace and love multiplied to us. What is mercy? Mercy can really be understood as kindness to someone in need. It's why we have an area of our church budget that we call Mercy Ministries, where we try to help those in the world who have needs that we can attempt to meet as a church, financially or physically, or whatever is going on in their life. If they have a need, we try to meet it. That is mercy. Real help, real forgiveness, real grace, real reconciliation. They're all encompassed in this word that Jude uses. And secondly, he says peace. The word in Greek is the word irene. It means a state of harmony. It's a little bit hard to define, but I think like many things, it, it, you know it when you see it. You know it when you feel it. So it is a feeling. It's a feeling of no conflict, but it's also not just a feeling, but a reality. A reality that because of the gospel, the faith given once for all, you can have peace with God. Peace with other people, peace in your inner soul, peace in the midst of the storm. Thirdly, he says love. This is the Greek word agape. Maybe you've heard it before. It's a Greek word that's sometimes translated unconditional love. And other times it refers to the Hebrew term hesed, which is the covenant faithfulness of God. This term love speaks of belonging, of, of, of steadfast love, of, of God's uh, care for you, his commitment to you. Jude begins his book and sums up his greeting with these three blessings. And they're really meant to show us that, that all the things that we know we need, all the things that the world seeks are meant to be found in the faith given once for all. These warnings in the book, his condemnations of falsehood, his exhortation to fight and beware, they are all for the great good of the church and for everyone who is a Christian. Now, why does Jude say that he, he prays for these things to be multiplied to the believers? It's because he's not simply talking about having received mercy and having received peace and having received love once. So that is true. We receive those things in the gospel. When you become a Christian, your life can change in that moment. You can have these things. It is the good news. And yet, it's more than just that. It's more than just what you one time receive. It's also what you experience in your day-to-day -day life. The word be multiplied is the same word used to speak of, of this exponential growth of the people, the children of Abraham, from just a small family into a great nation of Israel. Jude's warning is not for our severity, but so that the blessings of the faith would excel and abound and multiply with those readers and with our church even today. This is not the prosperity gospel, okay? This is not that your riches will increase tenfold. This is the true gospel that for those who love God and serve him and who cling to him and who are called according to his purpose, the things that you most want and seek and long for in your deepest heart are given in abundance by him. See, brothers and sisters, we have to understand that for the Christian, we find peace. 
in Christ. For the Christian, we find the love that we need in God the Father. For the Christian, we find all of the deepest longings of our heart in the faith. And what this shows us is that this should be a practical thing. Why do we warn against those who would deceive the church? Because we believe that there is nothing good lying down those paths. There is nothing good waiting down those paths of deceit. If we're going to hear Jude rightly, we need to believe and receive this from Scripture. I had an old professor who would always say when he would counsel people who were suffering for their sin, he would remind them the way of the transgressor is hard from Proverbs. And there's no peace to those who turn from the faith. I like to fish. And fishermen have a saying. It's this, don't leave fish to find fish. Y'all know what that means. Don't leave fish to find fish. I'm not talking about evangelism, okay? I'm just talking about actually fishing. Don't leave where you know the fish are in search of where the fish may not even be. That's what they're saying. You know fish are under your boat. Why are you going to go searching for fish that might not even be there? I think this applies to Jude's prayer for blessing. And this is on my heart. There there are so many people who grow up in church, and then they become like fishermen, leaving fish to find fish. Right? We search for mercy and peace and love, but we search for it somewhere else. Perhaps the kid grows up, and maybe you know, maybe it's your own kid, you know this. They start to hear these reasons why the gospel just doesn't make sense. And they're plausible reasons, they're intelligent reasons. And so they leave and they go searching in the world. But what are they looking for? They're looking for the same things that God says are ours in Christ. They go searching for, for, for love in the world. They go searching for peace where they thought it would be, but, but there is no peace out there. And though they thought that, that God would, 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 getting rid of God would get rid of absolute truth, they find that even in the world, there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness if you break the rules of those around you. There's so many things that, that this person experiences as they go searching in the world for these blessings. They, they, they find a little bit of passion. And yet when that falls apart, steadfast love is sorely lacking. They're looking for mercy and peace and love, but they don't find it there. Now, I have to be honest as a pastor. That sometimes you don't really find those things in the church. That sometimes Christians mess up. Oftentimes, Christians fail in many ways. We are sinners, and churches often fail. But here's the thing. Jude reminds us that Jesus does not. Jude reminds us that the spiritual blessings we need are found in abundance in the Lord. In the faith given once for all, our deepest needs can be met. And so it is to the Lord and that faith that we must cling For the first time, when you become a Christian, for all time, for those who have been called by God, hear from the words of the brother of our Lord. Cling to the faith. Cling to the faith. It's like Jacob. If you guys remember the story, Jacob wrestled with God the night before he saw Esau. And as he wrestled with God, the morning came, he clung to him and said, I will not let go unless you bless me. This is Jude's prayer. May we cling to God. May we cling to the faith. May we know that in the faith, we will be blessed. Mercy, peace, and love multiplied 
abundantly. And so in conclusion, this is what the introduction to Jude shows us. The book is a warning to hold fast to the faith given once for all. It is given by one of the earliest leaders in the church to the people of God of all times and places, really for our greatest good, if we would receive it. On the night of April 14th, John Phillips, the 25-year-old wireless operator on the Titanic, was working alone when he received the warning. But, as I told you already, he was behind on his work. So instead of passing the message onto the bridge, you know what he did? He put it under a paperweight at his elbow, and he kept on going. He kept on typing out these personal messages to the coast. He kept hammering away, furiously sending greetings and correspondences and ignoring the message that had come. And an hour and a half later, another warning came in, this time from a ship that was very close to them that said, we had to stop because there was ice everywhere. And again, consumed by his work, John Phillips reportedly told the operator of that vessel, keep out and shut up. And of course, you know how the rest of the story goes. You see, there is a difference between receiving a warning and heeding one. And John Phillips delayed that decision to not pass along the warning, to not take it seriously. It led to the most famous sinking tragedy in modern history. But the question is why? Why didn't he heed the warning? Was he just too busy? Was he just, I don't know, foolish? Maybe like so many on the Titanic, he thought that this ship was too strong, too new, too solid to worry about the warning. And that's my encouragement and exhortation for us today. I I know, I look around, I know people in this church, we take the Bible seriously. We try to. We care about sound doctrine. You might think, we're the church that doesn't need the book of Jude. Don't be foolish. Don't think that we're so strong, we are so solid, we are so theologically adequate that we don't need to hear the warning from the Spirit of God. That Jude might as well keep out and shut up. I pray and I hope, and I think that we are a church of sound doctrine. But so what? The Holy Spirit wrote us a warning. And so we're going to go into the book of Jude. We're going to spend a few months in it, a book you may not know very well yet, a book that you may find difficult at times, sharp and pointed, clear, but necessary. You have been warned. We will be warned. By the grace of God, may we heed the warning. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this afternoon, and as we look forward to the many ways in which you will exhort us to cling to the faith given once for all through this book. Would we listen? Would we listen? You have the words of eternal life. They are words of encouragement. They are words of hope. And sometimes, like in this book, they are words of necessary warning. I pray, God, that you would do a good work in us, that you would help us to experience the blessings that Jude prayed for. I pray, Lord, that our church would be healthy, not for our own sake, not for our pride, not because we look down on others, but because we are being prepared 
to be presented to Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.